0: Spencer, this week's episode of the Bella News Podcast is brought to you by Bella News Magazine. Never heard of it. Oh, that's right. The new print edition of Bella News Magazine, that is the January, February, is about to hit newsstands, I believe. This week on the cover, we have a wonderful image of Sepkus, local boy, resplendent in his Lato Yumbo yellow. And there's a lot of good stuff in this episode, Spencer why don't you
1: thumb through that? What what, what, what kind of stuff you see in there? Right. So the reason we have Sepkus on the cover is because there's a great feature in this issue about the science of climbing. Our resident coach, Trevor Connor, went out to the mountains here in Boulder with Sepkus and also with managing editor Chris Case, and they just smashed each other on all these climbs and tried to figure out what makes someone fast at climbing. It's not as simple as you might think. There's a lot of different variables and everyone kind of has their own physiological tendencies so really interesting article and then um, we've got a number of other good features in this as well we talked about your story fred the religion and cycling story last week on the podcast go back to that one for a listen if you're curious it was a good chat and it's a good article and um yeah we've got a number of other interesting stories fear in the pro peloton by andrew hood Ooh, and we also have an excerpt Don't be scared of reading that one, guys It'll be good, trust me, don't
0: be afraid of that one Scary piece, cycling, terrifying sport We also have an excerpt from Thomas
1: Decker's new book in this issue as well That's right, Thomas Decker, famous for doing lots of drugs for racing bikes Going really fast, and then flaming out
0: (laughs) Anyway, it is the new issue of News Magazine Check it out, pick it up at a newsstand now On with the show You're tuned into the Bell News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. with Spencer Paulison. Dane Cash is on the line. Guys, this is going to be kind of a sniffly coffee. Not, It's going to be an under the weather. Coffee? At, single at, origin? Nick, I have single origin coughing. The origin is my lungs. Mm. Uh, we have two of the three members of the Bell News Podcast feeling a little under the weather, myself included. Dane Cash from Washington, D.C., you're the other under-the-weather member. What's going on over there? I think I got a bit of a
2: blend here. It's like a nose, throat. It's kind of all over for me, so yeah. The bomb cyclone will do that to you now, won't it? That will do that, yeah. I just kind of had to hide inside for the last couple of days. Not like I could have gone outside being sick anyway, but uh, fortunately, we've kind of made it through the bomb cyclones. I think the weather outside is not so frightful now, which is nice.
1: Well, all the enthusiastic fat bikers in the D.C. metro area will probably be really sad that the
2: snow is melting (laughs) away.
1: No more fat biking in D.C. Well, anyway,
0: I want to apologize to all the good listeners and to Spencer. First of all, apologies to you, Spencer, for having to put up with our germs, which are no doubt through our electronics here and just infecting you.
1: Yeah, I'm expecting to get sick right before Cross Nationals yep, this yep. weekend. And then Should be great. Secondly,
0: apologies to you, the listener, if at some point during this episode we uh, are bombarding you with errant coughs or sniffles or just groans. Maybe we Sneezes. can all. Sneezes. We can. Can we all go around and groan for the listeners?
1: Uh, that's not. This is not that kind of podcast, Fred. Uh, Fred. I don't know. Uh, I don't feel yeah. good. Uh, oh, that kind of groan. It's uh, pretty good, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we got our groaning out of the way. Uh, we have a great show
0: this week. Uh, a little later in the episode, we are going to preview Cyclocross National Championships, which are coming up this coming weekend in Reno, Nevada the biggest little city in the world. Spencer, you're going out there. I will be there. You'll be participating. Indeed. And covering the race. Double double trouble. In fact, let's say you will be covering the race and participating. I don't want you to get any ideas here that you're going to be a professional racer. You're a journalist, buddy. This is true, very true. But before that, we are going to talk about one of the pressing stories of 2018, and that is the ambitions and success one of the peloton's best Grand Tour racers.
1: Well, is he the best? One of them. Mm. That well, you call is... one of the best stage racers? I think that's that'd be fair. Okay, you know. thank you,
0: guys. You're stepping all over my intro here. It's Richie Sorry, Port. We're going to talk about Richie Port, the Tasmanian Devil, BMC's team leader. He's a strong rider who has been snake bitten over the years with various bouts of bad lucks, flat tires, crashes, inopportune tactical decisions, you name it, it's happened to Richie Port. So we're gonna get to that. Guys, I feel like before we get to our discussion about Richie Port though, we should probably
1: hear from the man, right? That's right.
2: Our That's uh, a good idea. Uh, yeah.
1: Our faithful reporter, Andrew Hood, was at the BMC team camp just a few weeks ago and he uh, got to sit down with Richie Port. So
3: let's have a listen. Here we are with Mr. Richie Port in uh, beautiful Denia, Spain. Um, you're based in Monaco. Do you guys even know where you are half the time, Richie? I mean, you guys have this jet set, jet set lifestyle.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm just back from uh, Australia, so, you know, it's uh, a little bit, uh, yeah, I don't know where I am just yet, trying to get the bearings of it. Yeah, I think it's, it was nice to go back to Australia, put it that way, and, and have five weeks in the in the one bed not living out of a suitcase it was uh kind of something that
3: doesn't normally happen i mean you have an interesting backstory richie i mean you come from tasmania i mean most americans don't even know where tasmania is tell us i mean we know it's an island off the south coast of uh, australia what's it like there in tasmania what's the feeling like down there yeah, i mean it's just dead
4: relaxed to be honest it's a uh, great place to ride a bike it's it's easy it's safe it's clean you know it's 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 nice to get back there but it's, uh it's uh, a lot of people don't know that you know it is a part of australia have the same passport as uh, mainland australians that it is a part of australia it's hard to explain that sometimes
3: been a lot of a lot of uh, famous tassie riders come out of there it must be quite a vibrant uh, racing scene down there
4: yeah look it's uh it's great terrain to to ride your bicycle in and um yeah i mean from guys like michael wilson and and danny clark and on to the next generation like the the matthew gosses and i think there's a a couple of young guys coming through who uh, will probably turn professional in the next few years too
3: but you were coming through as a, as a swimmer, as a triathlete. How did you first get kind of hooked into cycling?
4: Yeah, look, I, I came through um, doing swimming, then triathlon. I uh, kind of got a little bit over that, and I was, I was lucky enough that at the time there was a team called Avanti, or sorry, Praties at the time, um, and the guy in charge, Andrew Chris Johnson, turned up to just a, a local race and said, oh, I think you've got a little bit of talent, and, and took me on board. So, uh, I mean, it's a... It's a totally
3: different world to to where I live now, but yeah, I love it. What's it like, thinking back, not even that long ago when you came through that breakthrough Giro in 2010, now who you are, flash forward, you know, you're a Tour de France contender, you know, knocking elbows against the guys like Froome and Contador and the whole elite of the peloton. What's that journey been like for you, Richie, over those years? Uh, it's been uh, incredible, to be honest. You know, growing up
4: watching the tour, like of course the the tours on ungodly hours in Australia. I used to sit there watching it with my mum while she's doing the ironing at sort of two in the morning, and um, to to get to the the top level of the sport, um, you know, it's 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 a dream come true to. Uh, to ride a bike as as a, a living, I think it's um, you know I come from a, a family of tradesmen, so I think it's an absolute privilege the, the lifestyle I have. I mean, it has its moments where it's stressful or you crash and injure yourself. Yeah, I think it's 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 just a fantastic um,
3: lifestyle. What was the hardest part for you, perhaps, when you kind of got to the world tour level, and you said, "Oh, gee, and you know, I can kind of maybe do this," but then you realized I need to even work harder, or have more sacrifice to get up even higher.
4: Yeah, look, I think probably the the first big sacrifice was, you know, my mum and dad paid for my ticket to, to Italy and, and racing there in the amateur scene. It was ridiculously hard and, you know, I don't think it was, you know, I think uh, uh, looking back now I realise why it was so hard, but I think I, I kind of did my um, school of hard knocks as, as an amateur. So then when I turned professional it, it wasn't so bad and I've, I've been fortunate enough to ride with three of the best teams uh, in world cycling what's the biggest sacrifice you have to make uh, no Bogues beer <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean obviously there's a, a time no place for, for drinking beer but you know I think uh, probably the the fact that my family's on the other side of the mm. world um, for the majority of the season is probably the hardest thing than just other other little things I guess like you know you do have to be strict on your diet I don't think it's a sacrifice t- to be honest it's um with the diet and stuff, I enjoy that. I wouldn't trade it for for anything.
3: So just uh, last year, of course, you had that great season running into the tour, and then just that bad luck and that crash. How hard was that for you? And earlier you were saying just that you know you were thankful. It could have been a lot worse, obviously.
4: Yeah. Look, uh, I mean, of course, it was bitterly disappointing. It still is. But um, yeah, I, I consider myself lucky that I, I didn't do more damage to myself. Obviously. It was a a big disappointment for me then to impact um, Dan Martin too because he was obviously in great form and he's a good friend. So I think you know looking forward to this year's tour probably su- suits me better than um, the one from last year. So uh, you know hopefully I can I can come good and um, you know have a, a great run into the tour and take confidence and and try and
3: challenge for that podium. And just looking back at that corner you were saying earlier that you thought that that previous corners where you came off your line was that something caused by the way the peloton was going or
4: no i mean it, it wasn't at all like i think i was sort of fourth wheel and obviously fourth wheel you kind of have to follow the lines of the guys in front but uh, for me the the problem started uh the, the corner before um I, I had a few little issues with the bike um earlier on in the day and um You know, I think it's uh, I was off my line already before the the camera picked us up. So uh, it happened so quickly. I don't really know what the hell went on. But, um, you know, people are quick to say, yeah, you must have grabbed a handful of brakes. But I didn't. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, it's just one of those things you just hope will never
3: happen again. And you said you watched the tour this past year from the couch. That's where you didn't want to be. Was going through your mind thinking, man, I have the legs to be on the podium and, and you couldn't do it because of the crash?
4: Yeah, look, I think, um, I, think I, I had no problem in watching the tour. It was actually kind of cool for a change. I haven't watched the tour since 2010, so it was was nice to have that opportunity to watch it. But at the same time, the, I turned the, uh, the the podium presentation off. I couldn't, couldn't watch that. Um, <laughs> it, it hurt too much because, I mean, I genuinely believe I I, I could have been around the, the podium mark this year.
3: And looking ahead to 2018, the Tour right at the top of the goal in terms of your racing season all goes building towards that.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think for me, obviously I want to win the races on the way in, but um, the Tour's the big goal and um, I'm thankful that the team still believe that I can be there and they're, they're going to put all their resources into uh, helping me
3: to, to make that podium. And when you see Chris taking on the Giro Tour double, how does that I mean, what's your first impression about? You think he's crazy to try that, and how does it affect you?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's it's Chris Froome, isn't it? He's won he's won the Tour, he's won the Vuelta, so I think um, if there's if there's anyone that can probably do it, it's probably him. And I think you know Sky with someone like Tim Kerrison in charge there, that it's obviously they've weighed up the pros and cons and they, they believe he can do it. So if you get
3: that podium in Paris, we'll have a few Bogues waiting for you in ice, I hope, right?
4: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll smuggle them into Europe somehow. <laughs> all right, Richie, thanks a lot.
0: Thank you. Okay, Richie Port is perhaps one of the more milk toast riders in the Peloton. Not exactly a guy who's going to uh, show you his cards all the time about how he feels about
2: things. Or maybe he's just really mellow about the way he, he feels about some of these issues. I'd say he had a pretty strong take on Chris Froome at the uh, Dauphin last year. So in that instance, I, I didn't seem, I didn't see a lot of milk toastness from from Port last year. So maybe it's only when he's angry. I don't know. Yeah, I mean he had some strong words for the Tour de France organizers for the uh, course last year, but we're gonna True.
0: get to that. So. Richie Porte's 2018 ambitions, one has to believe, will be very similar to his ambitions of the last few years, which is to have a good, strong build-up to the Tour de France, maybe go do Paris-Nice, maybe uh, Catalonia, probably Romandie. He's won Paris-Nice and Romandie twice. And then peak for the Tour. So when we look at this year's Tour de France route, knowing Richie Porte's strengths, the type of rider he is, do we think Richie Porte is capable of winning this year's Tour de France.
1: No. Nope. And that's because if you look early on in the route, you see that big, long stage through France where there is just oodles of cobblestones. Mm -hmm. And let's all remember that usually the way Richie Porte loses Grand Tours is by getting flat
2: tires. And he's definitely
1: going to get a flat on that stage. Okay.
2: Dane. I'll take the opposing viewpoint. I will say uh, I think he is capable of of winning the Tour de France. I'm not going to go so far as to say that he will win the Tour de France, but I think he can win the Tour de France. I think anybody can have troubles on the cobbles, and Port has had some issues with uh, flats in the past, a lot of issues with flats in the past, but uh, I don't think that means he's going to have them this year just because he's had them thousands of times in the past.
0: I am with you, Dane. I look at a rider like Richie Porte, his skill set, he's a very good time trialist. He can survive in these grand tours in the mountains. Just always seems to have that one bad day. But I am hopeful, and I think that he also is a rider who could contend and possibly win this year's Tour de France. Again, it, it will come down to the participation of Chris Froome. But I think a lot of it will also come down to the luck and overall tactics and skills about Richie Port. Because as we said at the, at the top of the show, Richie Port's is this guy who's kind of had bad luck. You know, I think we should go around, and first of all, before we get into this discussion, what are the things that come to mind when you think of Richie Port, both as a writer and a, a teammate and as a Grand Tour writer?
1: Uh, I, he'd like, to me, he's sort of the guy who's, in, who's nominated for the best supporting actor at the Oscars, and maybe he, he, he maybe thinks he should have won it, but he didn't. He's not, he's not the guy. He's never the guy. He, he he thinks he he should be, and everyone talks about him him being having the potential to win a Grand Tour. But he just never strikes me as someone who's an outright lock to get on a podium in a Grand Tour.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'll say that I think he's I think he's one of the premier stage racers in the peloton right now. I, I don't think you can discount his success in the one week races, and he's been one of the best one week racers for several years. And people kind of forget about that because he he'll then kind of flame out of the Tour de France, the Giro. But he's been incredible in in the one-week races. And then, yeah, he, he certainly has had issues with the Grand Tours. But I think the talent is certainly there. And, and the form and the ability certainly have been there. So I think he's, he's one of the best and, and, and sort of an elite rider who just hasn't been able to pull it together to actually get the results. Yeah, I'm with you.
0: I think he's the best Grand Tour rider of this generation to never have any type of result at a Grand <laughs> Tour. I mean, he's never won a Grand Tour stage. He has worn the uh, Malia Rosa Of the Giro d'Italia, and he has finished top five. He was fifth place, I believe it was 2016, Tour de France. That's right. But you know, it's always something that goes wrong. It's the flat tire, the crash at the wrong time, the wheel change that gets him kicked out of the Giro. It's some X factor out there that seems to get him, that seems to override this incredible talent and this incredible skill, and even, you know, incredible team that's built around him. So I guess the question is, is, going forward, do we think that all of his preparation, talent, skill can overcome this bad luck? So, as you mentioned before, Dane, you know, Richie Port is, um, you, you can't deny the fact that the guy is super talented and has amazing skills. So, he was a swimmer and a triathlete, Spencer. Ooh, I, what do yeah.
1: we make Ooh, of that? That's too problematic, yeah. We don't... Uh, I don't know, Fred. I mean, Fred, we let you in this building, even though you are a reformed triathlete. but true. I do look askance at you sometimes when you start talking about swimming 200 meters in the pool or something or whatever. I just is. love the fact that Richie doing Port. The, doing the backstroke, or I don't know, I even. What, are you, what what stroke do you even do? I love
0: the your... fact that Richie Port still swims. Like, he, in That's the off season will use it as his cross training. He'll get back in the pool. So he came from a family of swimmers. Both his mother and father were swimmers. Grew up swimming, got into triathlon, liked riding bikes, liked racing bikes, and showed amazing talent. And I believe, 2009, he went over to Italy with his yeah he swam there amateur team Pratties and had some results. I believe he won a stage of the Baby Giro. He was tenth at Langkawi. You know, he showed amazing. He showed amazing results fairly early on in his career. And generally speaking, when you see a rider at that age who's having results like that, all right, maybe you don't necessarily think Tour de France contender, but you do think, okay, natural talent, stage racing, you know, this guy has something to show. So 2010, first year's a pro. He gets on Bjarne Reese's team. He's on Saxo Bank and goes to the Giro d'Italia. And remember, this is 2010 Giro. This is... uh this is the Basso versus Cadell Evans, Zonkalan, mm. like really and a, kind of a chaotic
1: Giro. And that's, he, that's so unlike the Giro, right? You know, right? know, it's usually so predictable and rote.
0: And huh, so weird. this guy comes in and he's young, he's a neo pro, and he's able to wear the Malia Rosa for three days and finishes seventh place overall. Best young rider as well. Did not know that. Yeah, I'm looking at pro cycling stats right now. So fact yeah. when you see something like that and that type of success so early, I feel like there's a couple different ways guys can go. Like obviously one way is they just keep getting better and better and better. But I also wonder if there's like, if there's a thing that happens where a guy has success super early in his career and everyone around him starts telling him, well, you have time, you know, you have, you have a lot of time to get better, be patient. You know, you're just going to, to get better and let your sort of natural abilities come out.
1: You know, Fred, it's interesting because he he was so young, and to get that result then, and it was kind of a bit of a drought uh, up until he got into that 2016 Tour de France and had a shot as a co-leader with uh, TJ van Garderen, and prior to that, he sort of cut his teeth, obviously, at Team Sky as a super domestique for Chris Froome. And I don't know if we want to get into that now, but it's an interesting change to go from being a super domestique who's going to be one of the strongest guys in the race but isn't necessarily the guy to watch, you know, the, the lead riders and try and go for an overall result to, to actually being a true Grand Tour leader.
0: Well, I think Sky was smart, though, with what they did, which was, yes, he was the super domestique for Chris Froome, but they did give him chances to be a team leader, specifically at Paris-Nice which he won in 2013 and 2015. Yes, this is true. Dave, do you remember the 2013 Paris-Nice where he was, like, battling with the young up-and-comer Andrew Talansky? Did you watch that race at all?
2: Yeah, and it looked like Talansky was going to be the next, well, he had a couple of years It looked like he was going to be the next big thing and then it like Tolansky pulled the reverse port and decided to uh, go to triathlon
1: I know it, weird you know to me in some ways Tolansky and port they kind of remind me of each other a little maybe it's just because they're both a similar shape and size on the bike they're both pretty fair time trialists for being smaller guys they can climb well and yeah it's that kind of divide between wow you've you've had some great results in one week races but man what happens when you go to these grand tours it just kind of the wheels come off
2: yeah, literally.
0: The flats The, the wheels. Oh t-
2: wow, that was that was really clever, Spencer. Got the it. wheels
0: <laughs> totally <laughs> came yeah. off. So the we, we got to Seaport. You know, 2013, he wins Perry Nice. He helps Shepherd Chris Froome to his first. Tour de France win, and I think he, he was very, very impressive in that 2013 Tour de France. I was at that year's Tour de France, and I was on Alpe d'Huez and a couple of those stages in the Alps. And it's true, you know, Port was the last guy to stay with Froome. He really earned a lot of headlines by helping chase down Nairo Quintana, helping catch Joaquim Rodriguez. You know, some of these guys who were really giving it to Froome. And at, at that point in time, he did have that super, that, that was like the official super domestique coming out party. I mean, anytime you have the Tour de France champion and he's not having to go it alone on these final climbs, I think you can like label his teammate the super domestique. And so that's what brought him into 2014, which I believe was the year when he got the Giro d'Italia start, correct?
1: Yes, I think that was his first real shot at it, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken.
0: 15.
2: 15 was the Giro start, I think.
0: Oh. 15 was the Giro. Yeah, that's am right. sorry. 14. Yep. No, 14 was the year when he came into the tour to help out Froome. Froome crashed out, and then all of a sudden, he became Sky's plan B, and he was sitting in second place, had a pretty good ride going, and then it was stage 13, loses nine minutes to Nibali on the stage to Shamroos, and basically said it was too hot. A little too hot for him. That's kind
1: of funny for an Australian, right? I know. What's going on there? I guess he's sure. technically yeah. from Tasmania, so, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, 2015 Giro, that was a memorable one because that was the famous wheel change where where uh, his Australian buddy, uh, which one? It was a guy on Oracle, I can't remember it was, the a, name.
2: it was a Cy Clark, I think, Simon Clark. Yeah, yeah Simon I think Clark. you're
1: right. He he saw Richie Port in distress. He's, he, had, he's, he had a flat tire, and his, his mate gave him a wheel. And you're not allowed to do that. You can't take wheels from guys who aren't on your team. And so Port got penalized for that. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for him at that Giro.
2: Yeah, it was too much of a penalty, I think, for him to really come back from.
1: I think he also had a few bad days after that as well. So I
0: guess another, you know, we should talk about the next phase of Richie Port's career, which has been with BMC. You know, he was given, he, he went to BMC for 2016, to be given the reins, well, like co-leadership of the team with TJ Van Garder, in which he quickly showed that he was worthy of being a leader. But you know, Dane, what are your memories of that 2016 Tour de France and with with Port? I mean, he came in with a lot of ambition. He was obviously fit, but after that
2: flat on stage two, it kind of went out the window. Yeah, 16 for me, it was sort of I, I guess I was so we had so many instances of Port having problems that it was not. It seemed like it wasn't a surprise. You know, oh, another Richie Port problem. And, and yet, on the other hand, he did finally land in the top ten of the Tour de France the first time. And this was the first time he was in the top ten of a Grand Tour. Top since five. his Yeah, that's right. He was fifth overall. So the first time that's happened since his Giro top ten. And there's, like, as you kind of pointed out earlier, Spence, there's this huge gap in between. So I'm sure Richie Port wanted to get more out of the Tour de France. But as an analyst, I was happy that Port finally got something in the Tour de France so that you could kind of, for the future, you could finally say, well... Port actually has done this before in terms of being in the top 10. You don't have to necessarily say he's never done it. You can actually finally say, hey, Port's actually somewhere in the universe of the podium now uh, moving forward. Especially because he could have pulled the pin after that flat tire or at the
0: very least when things Really got hot in some of those mountain stages, just sort of faded back to the second group. But he didn't. I mean, he stayed there. I think he was in contention for the podium until I believe he crashed on the stage to Chamonix um, or to Mont Blanc.
1: Yes, rather. Mont Blanc was stage 19. Stage 19. He yes. was
0: he was in contention for the podium, but, but crashed, and that was kind of it for the podium. But like, you take out that crash and you take out that flat tire, and you you, you know you have to wonder what would have been for the guy.
1: It was a funny race too, because as as far as the GC was concerned. He didn't make it into the top 10 of GC until well over the halfway point of that race. It's sort of like the slow burn and it but it does I think illustrate how when you go into a race like that and outwardly at least he was co-leader with Van Garderen. I think it helps helps the rider keep a cooler head, be a little more roll with the punches a little more, I guess is my point in in terms of not just dropping out of the race at stage 13 because you're not in the top 10 but knowing that you've got tj there still hang in there see what happens and the pressure just not quite as high
0: yeah well and that's the big question yeah, but, and, right
2: i think and of course with that race they also had greg van Avermont who went out and won a stage i think if your team has another guy able to win a stage you sort of had the pressure off in terms of having to get a result so then you're able to kind of kind of sit back and say yeah maybe a top 10 would be not too bad
0: Right. And I think that's another thing to talk about, which is pressure, because, you know, going from Team Sky and going from this second banana and, you know, okay, maybe having the leadership role at a grand tour or two, but not the tour uh, into the BMC position where he is leading the team. That's this huge step up in pressure. And, And Spencer and I, we talked about this offline, which is... You know, there's been a lot written and said about the amount of pressure that goes on to someone who's in contention for the yellow jersey. And it's not just about pressure to like, you know, when you're going to put in your surges and to be tactically strong, but it's
1: the pressure to not screw up. Yeah. Positioning all these little fundamentals that as a domestique, you can kind of let fall by the wayside a little because, you know, you're not the key man to, to go for the final results. And I always kind of have my stupid running joke about how there's curses on these former Team Sky super domestiques, or the, the curse of the Sky domestique. garant Thomas, who who is yet to really perform in a Grand Tour as a leader, although he's tried a few times and had problems. Mikel Landa, and of course, Richie Port. But seriously, though, it's true that the difference between Riding these climbs in support of a guy like Chris Froome and then just seeing what happens after he's cut loose is way different than going into a race with the number one on your bib. I guess that's a good segue to the next part of the conversation,
0: which is looking at the 2017 Tour de France. Port famously came in as one of the leaders. Um, I think we named him the second rider to watch behind Chris Froome. He came in with really strong, a lot of pressure on his back. And he crashed out, stage nine, that was Montuchat, Cat Mountain, Mm. crashed out, coming down, uh, broke his pelvis believe he broke his shoulder blade as well. Really scary crash. It was terrible. I think in the moment, it was one of those crashes where everyone's kind of gasping, but then glad to see him. You know, you're glad to see the guy moving around after that thing.
1: And, and you know, I've been a little disparaging of Richie Port so far on this, but I gotta give him credit for being just such a tough guy to be like, oh, it could have been worse. Oh. <laughs> I, like, broke I broke some of the biggest bones in my body, but oh, it could have been worse. He's a, he's a tough character
2: and um, you gotta love that Aussie moxie yeah that response that he had which we heard was sort of and it might not have been the same the day after but i think it spoke speaks to his yeah his approach and and his his outlook after that crash that the kind of the first thing he thought of was yeah i kind of feel bad for dan martin when when we heard that audio just now it wasn't it wasn't self-pity he's already sort of moved on it seems so i guess the big question
0: is you know whatever hindsight's always 50 /50. 50s we can play the prognostication game which i like to play anyway but do we think Richie Porte could have won the Tour de France last year? I mean, let's say, let's live in an alternative reality where that crash goes away and Richie Porte makes it to the bottom of mont with Froome and Dan Martin and all those other guys and is able to make it to the line. Just analyzing what happened through the last two weeks of that race, do we think he
2: could have won? I think he could have won. I still would probably have Froome as my my retroactive alternate history favorite but I think Richie Porte is certainly probably be my, my second favorite uh, in this sort of alternate universe I think he has the talent and we saw that Froome wasn't quite at the same level as in past years so
1: I think that if there is a chance he could have won it but more importantly Port might have opened the door for another one of the key riders in this race to win it by racing a little more aggressively and putting Froome more on uh, the back foot uh, because as we saw Froome had moments where he wasn't quite able to follow, especially that stage to Paragude. What if Richie Porte had been there? I know that's one of your favorite things to consider, eh, Fred?
0: Yeah, that's my big what if. I was on I was on the slopes of the Paragoulds, and I saw that finish. And you know, Chris Froome looked really tired coming up that final stretch of road to the finish line. Actually, it wasn't even road; it was a runway. And you know, he said afterwards, basically. That he had been bonking on that final climb, and luckily nobody had attacked because if they had, he thought he may have gotten dropped. I mean, he did have teammates with him, he had Mika Landa, but you know, the other guys in there, Roman Bardet, your man from Cannondale, man, I'm Totally going blank of all the contenders from this year's Tour de France. Uh, Quintana and in there. Oran. Rigoberto Oran. Oran. Urán. They were all kind of following Froome and um, watching to see what he was going to do, and no one made a move until Fabio Aru went in the last few hundred meters. But that's where Richie Porte comes into play because Richie Porte knows Chris Froome better than anyone, and Richie Porte is a pretty aggressive rider. And I have to wonder how he would have reacted if he's in that front group. Maybe it's in the final five or ten k, and he's looking over and seeing Froome, and Froome's not looking so good. And maybe maybe Port can see something in Froome that the other guys can't see, and decides to give it a go. You have to wonder if he could have, you know, as you if he could have gotten a gap himself and gone on for the stage win and maybe put enough time in into Froome to take the uh, yellow jersey. Or, Spencer, as you said, if he would have softened Froome up with enough t- attacks that a Bardet or an Aru could have made the
1: move. Yeah, and Fred, for that matter, if you think about this even more granularly for this one stage, there were other climbs before the Perugud climb. And if BMC still has a GC guy in the hunt... And if they can figure out that Froome's not on his best day, what if BMC's at the front cranking up the tempo on you know Port de Balès, which came before this climb of the paris and It's uh, it's possible that it could have been a much harder day for Froome and for everyone, for that matter, uh, if if Port had simply been in the peloton with with hopes of of making time on that stage.
0: Well, and as we saw, BMC were super ambitious at that tour. I believe it was stage five when they sprung to the front of the peloton to like chase down the break. Great example. And, yeah, uh, they and everyone afterwards were kind of scratching their heads being like, "Wait, what the heck are you guys doing? Like, <laughs> like, like, like Sky have have guys in first position and second position. Why are you going to the front and like setting this mean tempo? They
1: wanted Fabio Aru to win on Planche de Belfi. That's true. It, you know,
0: I just think they wanted to flex their muscles to be like, "Yo-yo." Game time. We got we got our big guns here. Nice. Uh, one thing though, with the hypothetical alternative scenario, alternative reality, two thousand seventeen Tour de France though, I do have to wonder about Froome's tactical acumen, or not Froome. I do have to wonder about Port's tactical acumen. So let's say. Port is able to attack on Paraguds and take some time and maybe take the yellow jersey. You know, the following stage was that short hundred-kilometer stage with a bunch of climbs, and then the rest of the race did present a few challenges. Where if Chris Froome and Sky were put, you know, were kicked out of the jersey, there'd be some opportunities to attack Port and attack BMC and try to take time out of them. And that brings up another topic of discussion that we have to have here, which is oh man, the Dauphine. You know, the 2017 Dauphine was a race where Port did look to be the strongest rider, but he was undone on that final stage because of A, a weak team, and B, a couple of glaring tactical errors. So, Dane, I don't know. Do, do, do you think Richie Porte has the tactical acumen to have survived that? What happened in that Dauphiné? Take take me through I, it.
2: I don't know. Just for me, I, I just don't know that acumen is <laughs> the right word for the Dauphiné at least because it, the Richie Porte's response after the Dauphiné was this sort of fury that everybody had gained, uh, ganged up on him. It, it was like he was shocked that anybody would want to gang up on the leader, but it worked. I mean, he, he didn't win. Somebody else won the race, so clearly that's how you win bike races. You gang up on the leader, and it seemed like he was surprised by that. So I don't know, maybe he's learned from that, I, I don't know, but I do think that for Richie Porte and for a lot of riders like him, I think he kind of benefits actually from having a Froome around or a Dumoulin around, other guys who are strong at time trialing. Let's say that you're, you're late in a race, and so we're talking about acumen here, let's say you're, you're late in a race and and you're the leader, and a guy like Roman Bardet or Nairo Quintana attacks, uh, having a, a fellow big time trialing powerhouse around might actually help because those teams might help you out. And maybe BMC is not strong enough uh, to help you out. And maybe you're in a a situation like the Dauphine where you're not your team's not good enough to go after these these many attacks that are firing off the front. I think Richie Port might benefit from having a guy like Froome around in case Sky says, "Okay, we'll help out or or Sunweb says, "Okay, we'll help out because our riders are these sort of similar time trial powerhouses. So I think that. I don't think acumen will be his undoing, I guess, in, in future tours. And I don't think it would have been his undoing in the or 2017 Tour de France. I think if there were any undoing, it just would have been a, a form sort of situation.
0: I believe that quote that he gave after the Dauphiné was, but when Dan Martin comes up to you and says that Chris Froome is going around asking the other GC guys to gang up and attack Richie, I like how he uses this in his name in the third person, yeah. <laughs> uh, that that was quite a bitter pill to swallow. Bitter pill indeed. Man, that would be like, hey, when uh, Spencer Paulison's going around the office and telling
1: everyone that Fred's a ding-dong and we should take the candy off of his desk, uh, I wouldn't appreciate that either. Yeah, it's kind of weird that someone would suggest attacking another rider in a bike race <laughs> to like try and win or something. Or yeah, like, yeah I guess they just want to have a nice little group ride, just relax, you know, chat, have have a, have a, have some snacks, maybe. I don't know. It, th- this this question about Richie Port's ability to read a race and and be tactically astute gets gets to me where I think of the 2018 Tour in this 65 kilometer stage 17. I feel like that's the type of weird wild, unpredictable stage that it would maybe be hard for him to handle based on what happened to him last year at that Dauphine race.
0: Yeah, I think that the stage with uh, gravel in it, too, could present some challenges, as could uh, the cobblestone stage. I mean, you know, not like uh, having any wild takes there, but I do think that this year's tour could present some, <laughs> some challenges for him. Uh, what about other Grand Tours? I mean, Port, he's been this tour contender for the last two seasons. Do we think there are, do the, the, the Giro or the Welta present better challenges for him, or... Or do we think he's better suited for those Grand Tours?
2: I think that the Tour probably is his best Grand Tour. If you look at the Vuelta, the biggest challenge, I think, in comparison <laughs> to the other Grand Tours, or at least in comparison to the Tour, is the heat. And you have, I think generally with the Vuelta and the Giro, you have uh, harder, more repetitive, really challenging, steep climbs. And Giro, you have weather. So whether it's the weather or the heat, these are things that you would think, Richie Porte has already proven, uh, are, are not his best assets. Whereas the tour, I think you're more likely to succeed as a time trialist, uh, a time trialist and good climber combination. So I think the variables that the Giro and the Vuelta throw in there are probably not going to jive very well with Port's kind of inability to uh, not have mechanicals. I
1: think those are fair points. I. Uh For me, though, the issue is that the Tour is such a pressure cooker, and it's just all the top guys. I don't quite know if I agree that it's going to be his best race. I feel like if he gets a Giro, that's maybe a little bit like the one Dumoulin one, or if he gets a Vuelta, that's perhaps a little more laid back, less of the weird stuff. Those would be more likely for him to win compared to the Tour, and... You gotta also remember he's a thirty-two year old at this point. Well, he'll be thirty-three actually for the for the coming season. So getting a little long in the tooth. I don't know if that would be to his benefit when he gets into a big race like the tour, but Time is ticking, and to me, a Giro or a Volta is more low-hanging fruit, so to speak.
0: Yeah, you wonder if BMC management do look at him where he is in his career, almost to be 33, and say, you know, it's a little too late to like have him take a step back and try to win a Vuelta or a Giro for confidence-boosting purposes, rather than just target the tour and then hope that some, you know, something befalls. Froom and Sky and,
1: 2014 tour <laughs> and the
0: door opens for uh, Richie Port. So that's a good question. You know, I, I do wonder if maybe it would be good. You know, let's say Richie Port is four or five years younger, and it makes sense to skip the tour for a year and go target a different Grand Tour and uh, build the confidence. But it almost seems like it's. Uh, I don't know. That yeah. window may have closed.
1: I'd be a lot more bullish on him if he was in his 20s. Yeah.
0: Well, guys, that's a lot on Richie Porte. Maybe we go around the table and say uh, how we think Richie will finish at this year's Tour de France. Dane, how will Richie finish at this year's Tour?
2: Uh, I'll say if I had you know, had to choose one spot, I'd say podium. Let's say third. Uh, I, think I think he can finish on the podium. I think he will either finish on the podium or like in 100th or not at all. I don't think he's going to finish 6th or 7th. I think he's has the form to finish on the podium. And uh, just because he's had mechanicals every single time he's tried to win the Tour or any Grand Tour in the past, I don't think that necessarily means he's going to have them this year. I think there's a lot of randomness in mechanicals and crashes, for that matter. And, uh, you know, sometimes... In a random sampling of data, you're going to see patterns. And unfortunately, Port's pattern is that he kind of always has mechanicals or crashes. But I don't think that means it's going to happen this year. I think it's possible that he gets through without having any crazy issues and actually allows his form to shine through. So I'll put him on the podium. Dane, I liked your take of how Port kind of needs a
1: foil like Chris Froome to do well in Grand Tours. So I'm going to go with a nuanced take here on it. I think if Froome races the Tour, Port will be second. But if Froome doesn't race the Tour, Port will actually do much worse, because I think that it'll be too much of a free-for-all, and he'll get overwhelmed by all these kind of wild attacks that come from the likes of guys like Fabio Aru, Vincenzo Nibli, or whoever ends up showing up. I guess Aru's probably doing the Giro, but it'll be a a real wild open race, I think, if Froome doesn't make it due to the ongoing salbutamol scandal. The what? Uh, don't worry about it. Just yeah. go back and listen to some old Vela News podcast. You'll get it. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Uh, I'm
0: calling it here, guys. Richie Port's winning the Tour de Whoa! France. Yeah, doing it. Richie wow. Port hot winning take. the Tour. Flaming hot take, coming in with the heat. Full spicy take. Crikey! I think that this is uh, Richie Port's year. I think that the announcers are going to call him Richie Froome. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Both on accident and because you know it's just wow. There's a, there's this guy winning the Tour de France. And we're oh, so used to saying Chris Froome, Phil and
1: Paul, Phil we and love, Paul, we love them so. We can
0: tell you to call him Richie Froome, but I think Mister Port, the Tasmanian Devil, has what it takes to win this year's Tour de France, and I am going to cheer him when he does so, and then gives a really boring, bland take on the final oh podium. My <laughs> Uh, now for something else, guys, we need to talk about the upcoming U.S. Cyclocross National Championships coming up this weekend in Reno, Nevada, biggest little city in the world. Uh, for this segment, we have swapped out Dan Cash for Chris Case, Managing Editor. Hello, Chris. Howdy. Chris, last year, you raced Cross Nationals, I right? I did. I did. And that was like the sloppy, wet, mm. cold Hartford, Connecticut with the big hill, the big slip and slide hill. Yes, the giant slip and slide of mud the fun zone what what was the condition of that
5: when your race got to it? It was kind of half frozen underneath with slop on top there was some it was kind of a staircase that you could run up uh the top line was somewhat rideable. it was it was a so it was a mess.
0: Yes, but were you writing down it, or
5: were you butt sliding? Oh, yeah. Like no, all I didn't. The, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have the pleasure of of getting
0: the mud enema that day. Yeah. <laughs> I wow! Mean, talk about Jerry of the day videos. That uh, those videos from the Masters. Yes. Just well, we can't talk about Masters Cross. They're mm. all champions. All champions. Uh, anyway, let's get on to this year's race because it's in a different part of the country. Reno, Nevada. We've gone from the sloppy wetness wetness of the East Coast to the dry high desert of Nevada. And Spencer, I noticed earlier today you scoping out some videos of this course, some pre-ride videos and some actual race videos. What can you tell us about what you've seen about this course?
1: Yeah, Fred, I'm trying to get my head straight, really start to visualize. I've got a really important single speed championship race coming mm. up and I've been devoting all of my efforts and time to that. I'm sorry. The, the, everything on the VeloNews website has totally gone to hell since I've been so focused on this championship bike race. But I can tell you, kidding aside, that... It, I'll let it happen this once. Okay. <laughs> kidding aside, it is. it, it looks relatively familiar to, my, to me and to anyone probably who's used to racing cyclocross out here in the Mountain West. It's a combination of a more developed park area with... Grass that's not natural, of course, because we're here in the high desert. lumpy grass, yes. well, it's the, it's perhaps a little more of the kind of you know manicure type mm. stuff that a park service would put in. And then it's sort of like that is half of the course. And then the other half is what you're talking about, Chris, that more lumpy prairie grass. And that's more of a hill as well. So mm-hmm. it's in my mind, I'm seeing it kind of as two parts. Again, this is just based off preliminary stuff we've been seeing. USA Cycling's got a live Twitter account, actually, USA Cycling Live, that's pretty good. And they've been updating some videos today from the B race and can definitely see there's some elevation on this more natural I guess side of the side of the course where there's you have a, a pretty lengthy climb there's some twisty turny sections through the trees there's a lot of man-made stuff as well when you get out over to the the more developed park side of it where there's a sand pit that they've created there are these uh, really kind of short stairs that some people can hop if they've got good skills. Some Perfect other, for Cody Kaiser. Yeah, it would be saying. a Cody Kaiser, you know, Jeremy Powers type thing. I actually, you know what? I even saw a video of Ellen Noble hopping some stairs like that mm. um, when she was out training mm. before national. So watch out, ladies. That could be a difference maker in the women's race.
0: You know, this all sounds good and great, but guys, this race is going on in Nevada, legalized gambling. How come there's no casino section where you, like, Ride your bike through a casino. In
5: the single speed race, there will definitely be some gambling and some bets taken, and some poker chips will be flying.
0: I'm just thinking of like old school throwback to like Durango um, Mountain Bike World Cup where they go through that bar. Yeah. Like USA Cycling really needs to have found a way to have the race, like maybe have a run up through a casino and have a bunch of like. Chain smoking, blue hair, just like staring, like wild, oddly at these people. with well, maybe, bicycles.
1: That, maybe that's part of the ten year plan, you know. Derek, Derek <laughs> Bouchard Hall still getting his feet underneath yeah. him at uh, USA Cycling as a CEO.
0: So we got
1: off camber, we
0: got sandpit. I love the ditch. There's a wonderful video on USA Cycling's Twitter of some guy little like hopping over the ditch.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a wheel breaker. There. We also have some or a
0: collarbone breaker. Yeah, mm-hmm. we also have some altitude though, right? It's like. 5,000 feet of elevation. It's a
1: little shy of 5,000 feet above sea level. 4,500, I think, is what Wikipedia says, so you know it's right. And that will be, I think, a little bit of a factor. A few of the riders I've talked to already, Katie Compton, Stephen Hyde, have mentioned altitude, but I don't think it's going to be a huge difference if you aren't entirely acclimated to higher altitude riding. So in
0: the men's and women's pro races, we have a number of familiar names who will be Contending for the championship here. I'll run through them real quick on the men's side. Defending champion Stephen Hyde, four time champion Jeremy Powers, up and comer, young hungry racer out of Santa Cruz. And I do say hungry because he is on a privateer program. That is <laughs> Tobin. Starving. Glad. Starving. <laughs> Racing for sandwiches. No, Tobin is doing very well. Uh, Kerry Werner of the Kona team. And I think throw another one in there. We got our man out of uh, Salt Lake City. You spoke to him last week, Spencer.
1: Yeah, Jamie Driscoll. And that is
0: Jamie Driscoll, of course. Consummate runner-up at this race.
1: Yeah, he was second last year in a nail-biter yeah. in Hartford because uh, Stephen Hyde broke his derailleur off at the very final lap right before the finish stretch ran aclo- across the line. And <laughs> Jamie Driscoll is probably wishing there was another lap in that race. I mm-hmm. you know. On the, on the women's side,
0: we have Ellen Noble. Katie Keough, and then of course, Katie Compton, thirteen-time champion, thirteen consecutive championships. I think all of us have been to cyclocross national championships races where she has won. I've been to two of them where she's I've won. Probably been to eight of them. Yeah, we've all done. I think the, like the finish line, talking to Katie about how yep. she defeated, you know, George Gould or. Elle Anderson or Meredith Miller or, you know, I mean, she's been beating generations of top female American crossers. And when I came into this season, I guess that was a question I had was, is this the year that Katie Compton finally meets her match because we have these two talented young up and comers in Ellen Noble and Katie Keogh. and they both seem to have taken a step forward this year. And depending on what happens, you know, I could see either one winning. So maybe what we could do is create a scenario. What is the scenario by which either Katie Keogh or Ellen Noble wins? Chris, you have written about both of these women. Maybe take us to to Katie Keogh. What is the scenario that you see in which Katie Keogh would be able to win this race and topple Katie Compton?
5: I think it's one of those scenarios where Katie Compton maybe just isn't on her best form on a particular day, because if everybody's on their best form, I still think Katie Compton has the advantage. But if she's not on her best day, and Katie Keogh is on her best day, certainly Keogh seems to excel in those muddier technical conditions, which mm, doesn't look very likely that a place like Reno is going to have that. a Dry race, I think um Compton has the advantage, so hmm, what does Katie Keo have to do to win this race? Hmm. i
1: I can help you out on that one. go if you ahead. Might. Sure. sure. I, having spoken with Compton yesterday, she pointed it out, and I think we can all agree that Katie Keo is certainly a better climber than Katie Compton. And as we were saying, there is some elevation on one half of this course. If Keo can find a way to use that to her advantage, launch her attack there. Put the pressure on there. That might be the scenario when Keo is able to win over Compton. But having said that, I watched those two race in Louisville at the U.S. Cup CX race there, as well as the Pan Am Championships. That was an incredibly hilly course with lots and lots of climbing, and it didn't stop Compton from beating Keo.
0: Uh, how about Ellen Noble? You know, Ellen Noble, she won the U twenty three World Cup. I believe that was last year. She's uh, a multiple-time U23 champion. uh, She's stepping into the elite ranks this year. Great rider when it comes to muddy conditions, has earned a lot of social media cred for bunny hopping barriers and riding really technical stuff. What's the scenario we think that would have to happen for Ellen to take the victory? I think
5: that, you know, uh, we mentioned it earlier, if for some reason she's able to ride those stairs, that staircase, bunny hop it, and pull out an advantage every lap, I mean, there's a chance that that could uh, be a bit of a deciding factor. She's youthful. She's got a lot of enthusiasm. If she just lays it on the line and takes risks and and, uh, lays it all out there, there's a
1: shot. I agree with you, Chris. And I think that the one thing you can say about it being perhaps a dry race, which is certainly how the forecast is looking, is that it could be group racing up until maybe the final lap and in a scenario like that, it is conceivable that on a technical section such as if Noble is able to hop these stairs, if she's able to hop some barriers, I'm not sure. But if if it comes down to a kind of unexpected moment like that where she can get a gap and just punch it, maybe. Uh, yeah. But uh, certainly having a drier track would... I think make it more likely that you'll see a group riding together at least through the halfway point of the race.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I think it's going to be dry. I think it's going to be group riding. And as we've seen in those scenarios, I mean, Katie Compton, she's tactically sound. She's smart. But she also just has more power than these other women. And so barring any type of disaster, I think Compton is going to be the winner. I think the other scenario by which either Katie Keough or Ellen Noble could win is, you know, maybe Compton goes to like the craps tables or like she's playing some uh, some blackjack and just, yeah, loses track of time. Looks down at the watch and is like, oh, a national championship today. Happens to all of us, doesn't I was, it? Yeah. Uh, I was playing the slot machine. Totally forgot about the race. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the men. You know, we have Stephen Hyde, Jeremy Powers, Tobin Orton-Blood, Kerry Werner. Let's let's start with, let's start with Tobin Ortonblatt. He had a great early part of the season. He won both of those races at the KMC CrossFest, really came out of the gate strong. The scenario by which I see him able to win this race is if it is flat, fast, not particularly technical, and bunch racing. Those were the conditions that led him to win at KMC, where, you know, the group was... I'd say, between 7 to 11 riders. And Orton bled just p- positioned himself very well going into the final lap of each race to get near the front and sort of make the surge that he needed to do to win. Now, Stephen Hyde wasn't on his best form for those races. It was early season. He was a little sick.
1: Yeah, coming off a pretty bad sickness, actually. Coming off yeah. a pretty b-
0: bad sickness. So that has to be the X Factor 2 but when I think about yeah the scenarios by which Tobin could win, it's sort of a mix between fast technical racing where drafting is key. I think it, it's
5: what uh, Spencer alluded to with the women's race and Ellen. If it's a dry if it's a dry race, which it looks like it will be, there's group racing. There's that decisive moment for the women. If it's if it's dry and group racing for the men. Patience is key for Tobin. He waits, he waits, he waits. He's got a nasty sprint. He he could just wait until that final lap and then position himself and bam.
0: How about uh, Kerry Werner? You know, he's a guy who's always there, always there in the finale. Sometimes he's able to escape with the win, especially if it's like muddy and gross. But yeah, a lot of times he's like a, he's a solid podium finisher. What's the scenario by which Kerry could win?
1: Boy, uh, you know, I just don't, I don't know. It's definitely not looking like a very favorable Nationals for Kerry. He comes from a mountain bike background. And so, of course, I think he would prefer it to be more muddy, more technical, more ups and downs. Uh, Of course, like we said, there is a little bit of that vertical in part of this course. But to me, I don't know, I I mean, maybe if there's some sort of weird mishap, Werner could take advantage of it. He's, I mean, he's he's a very good racer, very smart, and is a tenacious racer. So, if something were to happen and he got a little leash I think he might be able to ride with it and stay away, at least for a lap or two, just depending on what the dynamic was like. But I'm not putting him at the top of my favorites list. And I would say don't put too much money on him at the sports book unless you get a real nice, uh, you know, a real nice line on him. Maybe a parlay. Oh, Okay, or a prop bet. (laughs) Or a prop bet. Let's just throw out some other terms that we don't know what they mean.
0: How about uh, Jamie Driscoll, you know, second-place finisher? He's he's, He's like the diesel engine who starts real slow, but then has the consistent lap times and is able to chew through everyone at the end of the race. What's the scenario by which... Mr. Jamie Driscoll is able to win.
1: Jamie's really got to figure out a way to get a good start. He's had so many races where he's had bad starts and has had to pick his way through the field and he can do it. And like you're saying, he just clicks off these fast lap times rides consistent. No problem. He's just got to get that start and get in the front group on the first lap or two. I think he has an advantage coming from altitude to a point. Like we said, it's not super high altitude. He's been training a lot through the winter here. He was out in Scottsdale, Arizona for a couple of weeks there with his family, putting in a lot of miles, putting in some time behind the scooter, I believe. We'll see. He hasn't really done as much uh, racing. To, it's just hard to say how these guys are riding right now because a lot of them have just been on these training camps, and he's he's one of them. Um,
5: Certainly he's coming in with a little bit of uh, fire from having – kind of a poor season for him. You know, he wants yeah. a little bit of redemption
1: yeah, at the yeah, end I, of the season. I totally think you're correct. That's what—that's more or less what he said to me was that he uh, just wasn't particularly satisfied with how his season went results-wise. He was close a lot of times, but I think a lot of it was those starts. He just kept setting himself back on the first few laps and having to fight for scraps and, you know, get his way into the top five maybe, but certainly not many podiums.
0: You know, talking about a guy who's looking for some redemption, We've got to talk about Jeremy Powers, you know. I mean, a guy a lot of pressure came into this season to rebound from his disappointing injury-plagued season last year. So far, it's been some uh, a couple hits, but a lot of misses for Jeremy this year. You know, he was diagnosed with a heart issue. He struggled with some back problems. He was sick. Um, what do we see for Jeremy's uh, national championships this year? I think
5: it all comes down to the day, you know. Um, it always does. In Jeremy's case, he has everything he needs to win. Um, he's proven that he can do it. He's got the, if it comes down to tactics, he's got the savvy to, to be in the in contention with that. He's got the, the engine, of course. It just, fingers crossed, his heart behaves, you know, because he's had some races this year where his heart has acted up and he's either dropped out or he's had to um, back off or do the Valsalva maneuver to, in the middle of the race to sort of reset his heart. All these. Wait, wait, wait. The what? The, I'm not familiar with this The maneuver. Valsalva maneuver. It's I thought that's you, what
1: you do in childbirth.
5: Nah, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh. But the Valsalva maneuver is you, you plug your nose and you bear down like you're, you know, going to the bathroom. Oh. And that, it's just a maneuver that, uh, be, take it on my word, it, it helps re- start, reset the heart rhythm, believe it or not. Wow. And he's done that in races this season.
0: Usually, I don't come to the podcast tapings to learn new things. About heart health? You, should, heart you health. should sit on, on a Fast Talk episode. You oh, might learn a lot. I,
3: I do. <laughs>
0: five minutes in, my head is spinning. Valsalva maneuver. Okay. Yeah. Learned something new today. There we yeah. go. Vocabulary Good word. Good to know. Good to know. I guess, finally, Stephen Hyde, the defending champion. You know, one thing we need to talk about with Stephen is that most of the guys on our list... Raced domestically this year, and during the curse period where American riders have tended to go over and race in the European World Cups, DVV trophies, and other big European competitions over the Christmas period, Stephen was the only guy who went this year. It seems like most of the American contenders stayed home, had training camps in the desert or high altitude, where Steven was over there racing. So what what do we think that's going to do for him, his fitness, his form, his confidence heading into nationals?
1: I think that for Steven, it does a lot for his confidence and for his uh, mindset, knowing that he's been racing the best in the world, and he's been getting solid results to boot two top 15s in the World Cups. He's had an interesting run into this Nationals because not only did he have those strong performances in Europe, he also went on a little training camp with reigning cyclocross world champion, Wout van Aert. Talked to him a little about that when I uh, gave him a ring this morning, and he's uh he 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 was pretty impressed by like just the amount of training load that Wout puts himself under and Stevens kind of taken a little cue from that and trying to boost his uh, his level a little bit uh, ahead of worlds and even beyond that he's I, yeah i think there's a risk of him being maybe a little overcooked coming into nationals doing that full curse period there's also spent some setbacks in, in addition to that sickness early in the season we mentioned. He got sick again later in the year and had a little bit of a reoccurrence of his knee troubles that set him back a few years ago. And in part, actually, that's it's kind of funny, but it was a little bit due to that sort of hmm. training with Wout where he he thought he would just kind of go all in and put in these huge, huge rides. But he gets it. He knows what he needs to do. He's He's found therapy for that. He says he's fine. He says he's doing just right. I think that it's good for him mentally to have all those hard races under his belt, but it's also a little bit of an X-factor because he just simply he doesn't know where his rivals are at since they haven't been racing as much, or they've been doing these uh, domestic races in the start of December, which were, you know, they're UCI races, and of course, it's hard to win races. It's hard to do well at any race, but certainly it doesn't compare to a cursed period cycle cross race.
5: Yeah, it's so strange to think about these matchups because they haven't actually matched up in a month or, uh, you know, at least. And so you've got one one scenario, Steven goes to Europe, races his butt off and, and gets some great results. That builds his confidence. But Does he come out a little bit fatigued from that versus these other guys who are training in the desert, staying warm, staying healthy? They know their bodies well. They know probably what they need to do to be on top form when they get to nationals. So it's going to be an interesting interesting matchup. Well,
0: kudos to Stephen for going and challenging himself over there in the curse period and, you know, to having the sponsors that want him to do that and see that as good marketing goal for him. I mean, I know it's not easy over the last decades. We've had a number of riders go over there for the curse period and have varying levels of success. I mean, Jeremy Powers used to do it in the past, Trebon, Wicks, they would do it, get their heads kicked in or have good success. But, you know, it's just kind of part of the game of being a cyclocross racer. But that leads me to another uh, topic that we should talk about, which is this is the final year that Mm. USA Cycling is going to have its nationals in January. I believe it's a seven-year run that they Mm -hmm. had it in January. When I was covering the sport a decade ago, it was in December. It was nice because you'd wrap up the whole cross season basically before Christmas. And then all the guys and gals who had world's ambitions would head over for the curse period, do some more races and then race worlds and not have to come back to do national championships. You know, What has been your impression of having it in January versus having it in December, sort of pluses and minuses?
5: Uh, You know, both as a participant and as a fan, I guess I've seen two different sides of it. As a participant, I kind of like it when it's in December and I wrap up my season, you know, but that's kind of selfish. But U.S. Nationals is a very different beast than Belgian Nationals. We are talking thousands of citizen racers that want to do this um, in December, Perhaps and and finish up their season. As a fan, it it's cool when it falls in line. I guess with the European championships, which are coming up on the same weekend this this year, just because that's like the culture of the sport, and that's it just f- seems to fall in line. And but logistically, it's maybe I don't know. I I, I don't think it, uh, it behooves American racers to be darting back and forth from Europe to to the U.S. and back again. So,
1: Yeah, I think with it moving back to December, we're going to see a lot more professionals going over for the curse period to do those races, following nationals, because it will just be easier on them to have their domestic season, put it in the books mid-December, head to Europe, do the curse period. Heck, they could even stay all the way through Worlds if it worked out for them that way, if they had a good setup, place to stay. I think you know, at all levels, it's actually going to be better because, yeah, there is an argument for having it line up with the European Championships, but the fact of the matter is that really doesn't affect that many people. And if you consider all the people yeah. who are doing the Masters races, I mean, hey, we want to we want to have a little uh, little break during Christmas. We want to eat a little more a little more Christmas cookies and take it easy. We'll have some eggnog, you know. <laughs> it's either that or you move the
5: entire cyclocross season in the U.S. from October to uh, February, rather than late August in 95 degree weather in certain parts of the country to December, which is not gonna happen obviously. So I think we're just settle into a September to December season in this country and then let the
0: pros head to Europe. I know, because then we'd have to also get rid of our annual travesty, which is like during the third week of the Tour de France. People on Twitter start uh, tweeting, cross is coming. The
1: cross is coming. Yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, only 3,827 more hours until uh, cross season starts. God, mm. shut up, people. Oh, my God. Uh, well, national championships coming up this weekend. we're going to have comprehensive coverage. Spencer is going over there. He will be racing in the single speed race. So watch out, single speeders. Oh, man. Yeah, stacked right. field. Huge field. stacked 157 field. 157 Riders, yeah, we got all the better
1: not miss my coffee. <laughs>
0: got all the heavy hitters like Doug and Bob and James and that one guy with single the, speed uh, Willie. Yeah. Should, we,
1: should we do like a whole separate podcast to preview that race?
0: We should do a I thought we were going to do a full comprehensive Masters podcast too. Mm-hmm. Bob, okay. Bob from the bank and. Doug who, from the bank. Doug who works at the uh, finance place. And no, uh, we will not be previewing the masters, but good luck to all the masters and single speeders and pros. Heart racing and soul of the sport. Yeah, heart
1: and soul of the sport. Those masters.
0: God, I love going to cross nationals. My favorite cross nationals memory, probably 2007, Kansas City, when there was an ice storm and I was out there covering the masters race, and it was so cold that I had my neck gaiter pulled up. To the bottom of my eyes, and my hat pulled down to the top of my eyes, and I just looked out of this like little two-inch-thick uh, window at the world and watched people racing bikes. And I was like, "Why are people doing?"
1: This? <laughs> oh, that was you, Fred. Yeah. You you had a cameo in the Nine Ball Diaries. Yeah, don't you? yeah, I remember. I remember you were in that the it old was, Tim Johnson documentary. With it was his, uh, Nine Ball. On very his. cold. Yeah. I
0: think my hands are still warming up from that stupid race eleven years ago.
1: That was a tough one.
0: Anyway, good luck to all the participants. Love cyclocross nationals, guys. Before we get out of here this weekend, we got to get some Cat Three advice. It's been a couple weeks. I feel like the Cat Threes out there across the country, you know, they're starting their training, they're starting their seasons, they're really hungry for some advice. And, and Spencer and I, we've been we've been saving it up, ready so, to go. Uh, Chris, we got some questions. Absolutely. <laughs>
5: question the first question is should i use bar mitts for the colder night rides
0: or no gloves at all and just go numb Ooh, that's a great cat three question Hmm. you know i kind of feel like these days bar mitts which i used to just mock endlessly until i uh, came across some people from the fat biking scene where apparently those things are like as, like That's like a water bottle on your bike. It's like, oh, yeah, you have your tire, your water bottle, and your bar mitts. It's like essential mm-hmm. using. I say go with what I do, which is like pull out the old ski gloves that you have. Like not the nice ones that you go take up to the resort every weekend, but like your old ratty ski gloves. And I say actually use those even when it's not that cold out because it just shows how big of a hard man you are. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're like, oh, yeah, ski gloves.
1: I'm gonna take a different approach to this, Fred, and say that uh, you just you shouldn't ride outside when it's that cold. You should start building up your race resume on Zwift, mm. on, the, on that uh, online training racing thing, and do some Zwift races, and just really start having that. Hang your hat on that as your real like, oh well, guys. You should know that I'm I'm top twenty right now on the Zwift Island KOM up the doodad with the Thingamabob.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know, don't accuse me of having a power drill up to my uh, Zwift sensor or uh, faking my weight. This isn't Zwift doping.
1: People. No way, no way. All above, all above Ford.
0: All right, build your Zwift resume and get some uh, ski gloves. Next question. Next question.
1: Last group ride
5: was forty-five degrees Fahrenheit and it drizzled for twenty minutes. What other ways can cat threes show we're hard as nails in winter training?
1: Uh, it's kinda like the last question a little bit. But
0: yeah, another yeah. weather related question. I think that a lot of this comes down to Strava, like your your oh, description yeah. of your rides on your Strava. So you go and you do your ride and it shows your stats and it goes on Strava and everyone can see it. And I think what you need to do is give the title of the ride. Some name that just really reflects how terrible the conditions were. So not just like 25 degrees and cold, but literally like you know sideways rain, raining cats and dogs, cars buzzing me, and um, you I know may never see again. Yeah, I may
5: my you eyes know. have
0: frozen to my totally skull. Eyes froze to my to my eyelids.
1: I like that. I think social media is a good way to really let everyone know just just how tough you are. And for me, I think that the bonus uh, social media you can do in addition to that Strava would be to do some nice Instagram photos, like all of your ride gear laid, oh, yeah. it, laid out on the oh, floor, yeah. sort of. Do one of those where mm-hmm. you like stand up on a chair and take a picture of it, and be like, oh, I only needed all this to do my 50 uh, miler today, guys. No big deal.
0: And give it some like really moody captions, you know, just like, oh yeah, boys went out today, 7 p.m. <laughs> it was still. I love your caption, we still boys. Had, we still had some light. So legs started churning.
1: Okay. All <laughs> Your right. Cap- hearts were beating. <laughs> Caption voice is the hashtag,
0: best. Hashtag dedication.
1: Uh, the hashtags are critical. That's how people mm, find you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hate Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> the final question is
5: a good one. I'm racing my local Catherine race next weekend and have the family coming down with some homemade banners to cheer me on. What are the best slogans for them to put on there that will spread fear? Through my competitors,
0: I mean, a lot of times I'll I take a page out of uh, marathon running, and you have the banner that just says "Don't trust that fart." <laughs> oh, gross! <laughs> so that'll scare all your competitors because they're like, "Whoa, don't trust that fart, Dave." Does Dave have a history of crapping his pants through uh, <laughs> midway through a cross race? I'm I would stay away from this guy.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I would suggest that uh, you know maybe these uh, signs actually should be more for you than for your competitors, and just. Give your fens, friends and family uh, your, your wattage zones um, mm. so that you can kind of remember, you know, oh, yeah, zone tw- zone three is is whatever. Just a little heads-up display type situation, kind of like maybe sort of like the motocross guys who have the whiteboards, they stick out in the middle of the race.
0: I like that. And when in doubt, if you want to have your family give some good heckling, just have them yell at the leaders of the race, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Or pull
1: pull through. Pull through. Work together. Yeah. A lot of good
0: ones. That always works. Well, thanks for tuning in to a froggy voiced episode of the Velo News Podcast. Hopefully our health has returned next week and we're not all sitting here sounding like croaky. Frogs. We would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters@competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on Vellanews.com. Subscribe to the Velo News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velo News on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash The Velo News podcast is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the VeloNews podcast are those of the individual... And as always, we leave you with a Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Perry classic, Soul Drums.